0: My name is Isabel Pekor, welcome. I'm the chairperson of the ISAIC Scientific Subcommittee on transfusion hemostasis and thrombosis. And this is the ESAIC podcast recorded in November 2022. Today, we're gonna to do a 20 minute episode on the topic of the utmost relevance, the prevention of perioperative venous thromboembolism, VTE for short. And I use the phrase utmost relevance because VTE is still a serious and potentially fatal perioperative complication and still accounts for up to 25% of all VTE events observed in communities. Well, the good thing is VTE is preventable, but how should we select the most appropriate preventive treatment pathway in the perioperative setting where bleeding complications as well as thromboembolic complications burden our patients? So I have prepared today a short case scenario to to generate some case-related questions as well as a couple of dogmatic statements to be discussed with my esteemed guest, Professor Charles Mark Samama. Hello, Professor Samama. It's so nice to welcome you here. Uh,
1: Hello, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to elaborate on the venous thrombobalism, perioperative venous thrombobalism prophylaxis. Very happy, very honored too.
0: Thank you so much for being here with us. Before we start, let me tell you a little bit about my guest. He's an incredibly accomplished anesthesiologist and he finds time not only to fulfill his leadership role at the Université Paris-Cité, but he's is also the current editor-in-chief of the AI and Ajax uh, journals, actively involved in different uh, European, national and international societies. And regarding today's podcast topic, he is acknowledged as one of the leading experts in perioperative VTE prophylaxis and he chairs the ESAIC task. Task force for the development on the guideline on the prevention of periop VTE, which was first published in 2018 and an update is currently underway. Am I right?
1: Yes, sure. thank you for this in the very kind introduction. But I'm also a, a very tall man and very simple. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> So
0: let's start by learning something together as we discuss prevention of venous rhomboembolism with reference to the following case. A 60-year-old female patient is scheduled for elective hip replacement. She has no comorbidities except visible varicose veins and her weight with a BMI of 28 meters per square kilogram. Um, she says medicates with ibuprofen 400 milligram twice daily during the last three weeks. So to make sure that we are all on the same page, we'll start with a short question and answer section about VTE risk assessment. So Professor Samama, could you briefly comment on the most important patient-related risk factors contributing to peri VTE for the case scenario and of course in general?
1: Yes, absolutely. In, in in that case, of course, surgery is the most important one, but taking the, the surgical risk apart. The the four more important risk factors are the age. Uh, She is 60 years old and the increase in the risk uh, starts to increase at 60 years old and even more at 65. Uh, Second, the cancer is a risk factor. This patient doesn't have any cancer, but cancer is a very potent uh, phormotic risk cancer. Obesity is the third one. This patient is not obese, she is only overweight, but obesity with BMI above 30 and especially above 40 uh, is a very potent risk factor. And last but not least, uh, an acute medical uh, uh, complication, an acute medical uh, 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 hospital- hospitalization or acute medical disease is a, is a very severe risk factor.
0: Oh, thank you for these insights. Well, I understood that which is only one side of the same coin, the risk of bleeding at the other. So how can we evaluate the patient-related bleeding risk in a standardized form?
1: Well, it's it's much more complicated. Uh, uh, we also have to, to take surgery apart because in this setting, surgery is the most important bleeding risk. And uh, a total replacement bears a open or 0.3% risk of major bleeding. Uh, The other major risk factor for bleeding uh, are the personal history of uh, coagulation deficiency, for instance, but most of these patients are followed by a nematologist, and you must be aware previously and must have taken some measures. The second, uh, the second one is uh, the, the treatment, if the patient, the patient is treated with an anticoagulant, an antifrombotic drug, uh, uh, namely uh, um, an anti agent, DOAC for instance, which haven't been interrupted. Uh, the emergency setting is a risk factor for, um, for bleeding, and uh, um, a personal history of bleeding is also a, 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 a risk factor.
0: Thank you. But now a tricky one. Well, in my opinion, it's most difficult to balance VTE risk against bleeding risk. Do you have an advice, any advice from your clinical experience how to do it?
1: Well, the, the, um, both these risks are decreasing. The, uh, the VTE risk is decreasing thanks to the surgeons, thanks to anest- the anesthetist, thanks to the technique, thanks to the economic pressure to the, the hospital and the insurances pressure, and uh, um, well, and thanks to uh, especially to the fast track procedure, uh, the enhanced rehabilitation procedure, which uh, bear a huge responsibility in the decrease in the uh, thrombotic risk. And now the, the risk of pulmonary embol- embolism, has been uh, divided by a factor two in a recent uh, UK registry and the risk for uh, venous uh, proximal venous has been divided by a factor four in uh, a ten year uh, ten years period. So really um, these risks are decreasing and the bleeding risk is also decreasing because we are managing the patient uh, very well and we are uh, uh, paying a lot of attention to the perioperative treatment, to the antithrombotic agents, uh, uh, to to many things. But some patients may bleed, but the occurrence of of bleeding is uh, uh, two or three times uh, lesser than the uh, thrombotic risk. Mm.
0: So, thank you. Let's move on to procedure-related risk factors. Generally, surgeries exerting a high postoperative VTE risk can also be associated with the risk of intraoperative bleeding, of course. And therefore, some societies recommend prophylactic antifibrinolytics to limit blood loss. So, Professor Samama, let's challenge the first dogma together, namely, no prophylactic use of blood stabilizers like tranexamic acid in non-cardic surgeries, for example, elective hip replacement. I'm really interested in your thoughts and recommendations.
1: Well, um Tranexamic acid uh, doesn't bear any thrombotic risk and uh, on the contrary in many studies and many many meta analyses uh, it has shown a kind of anti-inflammatory action and a kind of anti-thrombotic action so it doesn't increase the thrombotic risk and uh, except in the last post-3 study where there was a kind of misunderstanding with the perioperative thrombotic risk but which didn't allow a non-inferiority uh, I do believe that there's no uh, thrombotic risk with tranexamic acid, and we know uh, now that you, uh, for any uh, surgery with a, a medium or high bleeding risk, tranexamic acid should be given as a bolus at, at the beginning and at the end of surgery, as nicely demonstrated in a poetry study published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, including more uh, not, not far from 10,000 patients.
0: Hmm, right, thank you so much. I would really love to discuss this topic a little bit, little bit longer, but we'll need to proceed to the field of different treatment pathways like mechanical VTE prophylaxis. And well, here we can find our next stimulating dogma in the following statement Graduated compression stockings for VTE prevention are better than nothing.
1: Oh. that means that nothing could work. Uh, No, they are not better than nothing and they can be uh, worse because they can be responsible for ulcer or or skin breaks and they do not provide any uh, serious prophylaxis as nicely shown more than 13 years ago by the CLOTS-1 study published in The Lancet. Uh, and uh, this study had the power to show that uh, uh, elastic stockings did not provide any prophylaxis against thrombosis. And more recently, the GAP study published in the BMJ has compared a group treated with a heparin and a group treated with the combination of a lomerular heparin and uh, compression stockings, and there was no added benefit of the stockings. Uh, as a general rule, we can get rid of the stockings perioperatively. There's no benefit in using the stockings, and there may be some harm. And uh, that's why the um, 2018 e s a recommendation had the privilege to, to chair, uh, uh, have developed in the chapter mechanical prophylaxis the recommendation that we should not use uh, elastic stockings anymore.
0: Mm. And what about patients who have uh, visible varicose veins? What is your opinion on that?
1: It's a completely different problem because uh, stockings may may be appropriate for the comfort of the patient, but I'm not sure that they will prevent uh, venous tumor Oh,
0: perfect. Thanks so much. We have to move on to my last question. It's dedicated to the section of pharmaceutical thromboprophylaxis. Uh, Well, as we all know, heparins and in some therapeutic areas like elective hip and knee replacement direct oral anticoagulants are approved by the European Medicines Agency for Pharmaceutical Prophylaxis. On the other hand, aspirin is licensed as a platelet inhibitor, but some guidelines recommend it's use for venous thromboprophylaxis. Well, that's quite controversial as a dogma aspirin is not sufficiently effective in the venous segment has been deeply entrenched in our community. The ESAIC guidelines have dedicated a full chapter to the use of aspirin for thromboprophylaxis. Would you like to make some remarks to mitigate the dogmatic view on aspirin's efficacy in this context?
1: Well, I would have loved to make these remarks one month ago, but unfortunately, one month ago in JAMA, the crystal study was published, including 9,600 patients. This was a kind of randomized study in uh, Australian uh, Australian hospital or New Zealand. I don't remember exactly comparing hospital using aspirin and hospital using a luminal wet heparin and. Uh, Aspirin in total hip replacement patients and total knee replacement patients was not non inferior to lumeric or wet airplane. Uh, unfortunately, this study was not powered adequately. There was no focus on the ERS patient. Uh, we don't have any data on the duration of, of the hospitalization, on duration of surgery. So it, it's almost impossible to conclude of, on the lack of benefit of aspirin. Aspirin did, did, did worse than uh, Lomeca what heparin. But um, the, the only uh, uh, truth in, in this very sad story is that any research uh, regarding aspirin in orthopedic surgery is going to stop. It's a pity because there was a kind of rational You know, the uh, the, the the arterial clot is the same as the venous uh, clot, but it's a kind of continuum. They they both have a fibrin network. They both uh, contain uh, red blood cells and platelets, and but it, it's they are different because the arterial clot contains much more platelets and the venous clot, which occurs at the low shear stress conditions. Uh, uh, contains uh, much more red blood cells. But uh, in this regard, uh, uh, there are some arguments to uh, uh, show that aspirin may be effective in even venous thromboembolism by the the NETs, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, which may may be uh, responsible for uh, uh, the promotion of venous uh, thromboembolism, the, the neutrophil extracellular traps. Um, and uh, aspirin in uh, interacting with uh, the nets could be uh, could be a, 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 an appropriate drug in decreasing venous thrombosis. However, it's less potent than venous thrombosis. The issue is that as the risk is decreasing, 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 and uh, uh, we are not even still sure that uh, the uh, regular total hip or total knee patient young patients with uh, uh, very rapid mobilization deserve uh, a long-term prophylaxis of uh, two weeks for the knee or four weeks for for, for the hip. In, in Scandinavia, in Denmark, for instance, uh, uh, the duration of hospitalization is between one or two days because of ERAS in the Kelad group, for instance. And they are only treated for uh, for the duration of the hospitalization one or two days of either uh, Dorax, uh, Rivaroxaban, or Anaxaparin. Do you really believe that one or two injections of Anaxaparin or one or two pills of Rivaroxaban are responsible of a very low DVT rate? I'm not sure. It's only because these patients are managed adequately. So in this regard, aspirin could do the job. But unfortunately, I'm not sure now that uh, uh, our colleagues will continue to prescribe some aspirin.
0: Mm. Oh, thank you for the statement. All right. We have covered a respectable bunch of topics. Dear Professor Samama, thank you so much for your valuable time, sharing so many thoughts and precious recommendations.
1: Hope to meet you in person. Bye-bye.
0: Dear listener, we are at the end of the podcast. We learned that there is no magic bullet for a comprehensive calculation risk assessment, meaning VTE and bleeding risk assessment. The most difficult part is not to forget anything and to collect and process all relevant information in a structured way. In addition, we must not forget to reassess our patients during their clinical course as additional risk factors may occur. In case you need some support in your daily clinical practice and risk assessment or selection of adequate treatment pathways, there is an ESAIC BTE prophylaxis app available for download from your app store. I really want to thank you again for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed it and it'll be useful to you. The next ESAIC podcast is coming next month. Please go check them out. Have a great and lovely day. Bye-bye. This episode is sponsored by Synthetica.